as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Kevin McKernan, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Vance, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I appreciate it. There's a I feel like it was yesterday, but it's probably been a month. Who knows? <laughs> oh my gosh. And it seems like uh, you were a person that I just met as a complete stranger. And now I'm texting you being like, hey man, you on, you ready to go? And you're like, no, I, I can't right now. I'm, I'm PCRing a SARS virus. Yeah. <laughs> and so like now I've got a buddy out, out on the East Coast that's messing around with SARS. What are you doing out there? So um, this may be completely superfluous and probably uh, it's an insurance policy. We're, we're worried if they find SARS in the cannabis supply chain, we'll get shut down. Um, and so we set out on, on a bit of a mission to figure out how to detect potential SARS contamination on, on cannabis. It's not a replicative host. It shouldn't have any SARS, but we have, um, we've got dispensaries and uh, we've got grows in town right now that are getting employees that are coming down with it. And naturally everyone's worried that, you know, cannabis is manually farmed and manually trimmed often. And there's a lot of human contact with it. And so if anyone's coughing or, uh, or spreading SARS onto the cannabis. It's an inhaled product. So the, the next people downstream who might be getting this are people who could be potentially inhaling it. Um, and that in itself you think might be extreme, like a lightning strike, but um, there's a lot of bat guano getting used as fertilizers. That's where we're finding a lot of the coronaviruses. And then if you look at the patients, um, the patients uh, have share comorbidities. Uh, so a lot of the elderly population started using CBD as this became more legal. Uh, we've got a lot of COPD, diabetes, hypertension, cancer in particular. There's a lot of cannabis use in cancer. So those are all the patient classes that are exposed to COVID. Uh, and so we're, we're just worried if it ever shows up, um, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a shutdown for us. So we just started building tests that could pick up SARS on, on cannabis. So now I'm finding myself like managing it every day and, and PCRing it and purifying it. And uh, naturally, all, all of the... Uh, the whole mask debate gets thrown at you left and right. As I, I saw that you're you're involved in some of that recently as well, and uh, there there seems to be a community out there that's all or nothing on this. Like you either wear masks all the time while riding bikes and in cars and going to bed, or you don't wear them at all. Where and that there's no cost to wearing them. That it's right, just that people right. don't want to. That my biggest issue with the way that debate is going is it's it's saying look at all these reasons why you should. And here's only one reason why you wouldn't. And it's because you don't care about anybody Selfish. else but yourself. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second, there are going to be second order effects here. Things you can't predict when now everybody's not only allowed to wear a mask, yeah. but yeah. impelled to wear a mask. Like this is uh, people didn't, you're right. We're in this place where people want all or nothing answers and it's getting scary out there. Yeah, and, and we're not even getting those from, I mean, we've seen the who flip-flop, we've seen Fauci flip-flop on this thing, and it's not because, I, I don't think they're being deceitful, I think it's that it depends on the context. If you're a physician that's managing patients uh, that, that are immunocompromised, maybe you should wear one, and, and if you're out running or on a, I mean, I saw someone on a bike today fondling their mask while riding a bike. I'm like, my, you know, right there, my rain man goes off, like, wait a minute, you're riding a bike one-handed fondling your mask is probably more dangerous than the risk that you're averting by putting the mask on. <laughs> Uh, so this has gone to just extremes of, of either virtue signaling or something that, um, and, and there's some data out there on hypoxia. These masks, if you wear them all day, they become wet sponges on your mouth and, and there's higher respiratory infections with people that, that don't know etiquette on wearing them. Uh, and I'm not perfect at wearing them either, but if you're, a lot of these studies, they're finding 
they're, they're finding the SARS on the outside of the mask. Now, that, that's not from breathing it in from the atmosphere. That's from your hand touching something and putting it there, right? So they, they become a collection filter for all types of microbes. And uh, they, if, you know, when you use these things in a, in a, in a sterile setting, it, you know, you, you touch it and you toss it, right? If you ever touch your mask, you throw it out and get a new one. And no one's doing that. You know, they're fondling them, moving them around, riding their bikes with them, walking. And, and none of that is, is, is at one, it's probably environmentally really destructive. I don't think there's good evidence that it's filtering these things out. Maybe some of the droplets and the coughs and what have you. But it's, uh, yeah, it's gotten crazy that, where no one can see any nuance here. Um, so yeah, if I were handling live virus in a lab, you got to do it in a BL3 lab, I'd wear one. But if I'm going outside that day after being in the lab, I'm not wearing one. Uh, it, it, and what about being in in a in a closed environment? You going to the grocery would, store again? I would probably. I mean, they make you wear them in the grocery stores. I probably wouldn't um, feel like I need to. If I were in a New York subway, maybe I'd put one on. Uh, I mean, all the areas that have demonstrated there's bad airflow and high population density and perhaps high viral load, but. Um, wearing them everywhere just seems like we're going to have, I can't imagine how many masks are floating in the Pacific after this. Well, I saw, you know, I had a really interesting guy, Brad Frecking on, who was uh, running a pork plant and they had huge numbers of people coming back positive for coronavirus and yet very few people showing any symptoms at all and only one hospitalization. And uh, that was news that when that, that came out, I remember that was the same week as the two doctors that came out. It was the same time uh, oh, yeah. you and I talked. There was a whole bunch of stuff like you're not even allowed to question any part of like how dangerous this is or how deadly or any of that. So where do you think we're at now? Uh, well, you bring up good, good studies there. I mean, those are really interesting, right? You see this go through communities like this. They're, you know, they're, they're in work environments where they're probably really close. I would imagine a lot of those rural areas, um, many of those people are probably socializing after work at the local bar. I mean, you tend to have these large factories that are in rural America. Uh, there's probably not a lot of places for them to go afterwards. So you tend to get a big community, you know, collection points at certain local restaurants and bars. That's probably where it's spreading. It's probably not spreading on the production lines, but you raise a good point that not a lot of them are getting sick. That was seen on the USS Roosevelt. That was seen in the Diamond Princess. If you look at both of those cases, those are like Petri dishes that are islands. Uh, they're contained. And something like 82% of the people were clearly exposed because they were held in the tightest quarters you could ever imagine and they didn't come down with a sickness. So why? Why are they not getting sick? If you, if you jam that many people, I think it was five, uh, close to 5,000 people in the USS Roosevelt, and they, the, the density at which they stack those people is like tighter than New York City. Oh, I used to live on a ship, it, and, and they're living in soldier conditions where you, they don't have to try and convince uh, young college kids to go work there. It is cramped. You are right on top of each yeah. other. You're taking a shower in an area that your shoulders are so broad, they'll, they'll touch both walls. Like it is yeah, yeah. super tight. Social, di social distancing is impossible. So anyone in those ships is fully exposed and only 17% of them are, are coming down with. Is that right? Cause last we yeah. left the story of the ship, it was like waving goodbye to the ship captain that absolutely broke all the protocols. And these poor soldiers were basically left on the ship to die. And then we didn't hear anything about it. So what, what did end up happening there? Yeah, th there's a good, um, there's a good video to, to point your, your audience to. I think it's from someone at Rockefeller University who kind of, it's about a 12 minute video that walks through the numbers in the Diamond Princess and on, uh, and on that cruise ship. And the numbers line up pretty close between the Diamond Princess and, and the USS Roosevelt uh, of having over 80% of the people not getting sick despite being exposed. 
uh, and then you look at the prisons. The the prisons have um, uh, there's uh, I'll I'll send you a link on 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 the prison study. There's a place that's tracking all the prisons, and they, and one of these studies it was like 19. Uh, over 1,900 cases and only 10 deaths, right? So that's uh, that's down at 1%. And, and, you know, prison environments, they're not getting a lot of vitamin D there, right? This is a, probably, a, you know, poor living conditions. They don't get outside much. Their immune systems are probably, you know, destroyed from being indoors and contained all day. And even there, it's hard to get the numbers up to 1%. Uh, and, and Oh, really? I was expecting you to say, Hey, the reason their numbers are over one percent is because they're vitamin D deficient. I thought you set up yourself in the in the they, argument. They, they could be, but the fact is, they're just they're contained, and everyone's got to be getting it, and only a very small number of them are dying. Uh, so, what does that say? I, I would imagine, um, yeah, the, the the I don't know the demographics of those, but I would I, I we do know there is there is a high incident of African American um, imprisonment, m more so on drugs than than equal number of people. If you're Caucasian getting caught for drugs for the same crime, there's something like a four to eight fold higher rate of getting incarcerated if you're African American Jeez. for the same crime, despite the fact that drug use doesn't differ between the two. So there's clearly racism involved in prosecution and involved in who's getting incarcerated. Uh, and so there, there's interesting studies in Norway and in, I think it's Norway and Sweden. I could have, it's, it's a Nordic country. I've got to get the right country uh, on this, but the, um, there are African-Americans and I shouldn't even say African-Americans. There are people of dark skin that live in Northern latitudes and they're the most vitamin D, D, D deficient folks in the world because they're not getting the sun that they, that they're used to. Uh, and they're seeing higher rates of COVID fatality amongst them. So I imagine that same thing's going on in prisons. Wow. Um, that that community's vitamin might indeed deficient, and they would be particularly prone to this. And yet we're not seeing nursing home-like fatalities there. We're seeing fairly suppressed uh, um, exposure to this. So what is it with vitamin D? I mean, all of a sudden that hit, I saw Matt Ridley talking about it. I've heard people, you know, trying it's to, there. And, it, and it's like, it, it, it feel, it felt at first, like we were talking one step above like essential oils or get yeah. your, uh, you know, your Vita it's C easy, pack. It's easy to throw to everyone and the FDA likes to, you know, downplay anything that could be a, a neutral, you know, nutraceutical, but um, no, people have been talking about vitamin D for a while. Nick Zabo has been, pu been, been pushing on this quite a bit. He's, he's really involved in the, um, early on in the Bitcoin space, and he caught on to a lot of these papers really early. I started reading them, and it, it helps boost your immune system. Uh, so if you can boost your immune system cheaply, hey, that's, that's the thing to do. And a lot of people, um, there's a lot of correlation between vitamin D deficiency and, and, uh, and uh, COVID fatality. So uh, that's the easiest and cheapest thing Americans can do to, um, to pump up their um, their immunity. And it's probably also why a lot of these viruses disappear in the summer is that people get out more, uh, they get more sun, they get vitamin D levels up, but in the wintertime, everyone's vitamin D deficient in Northern latitudes. And so there's a higher likelihood of these viruses causing grief. Um, I think that's one reason why we're probably seeing it, it fade away right now. And so, I mean, the obvious question is, did people overreact? If, if what you're saying is it's vitamin D deficiency and it's not that, that, um, fatal did the decisions we made was this the wrong way to go yeah i think we did i mean when when you look at the at the ferguson models all of these things were going off of r naught r, r naught is a reproductive number that assumes the population that the disease is entering has zero immunity to it right but what's really happened is is and what a lot of epidemiologists will point to is you have to go after re which e, e is the um has to do with 
what portion of the population is actually susceptible. So if there's any previous immunity to this in the population, it puts the brakes on the, uh, on the spread of the, the virus quite quickly. In fact, uh, Michael Levitt's been, been um, presenting a lot of this work too. He's a former, um, what year did he get the Nobel Prize? I think 2013 Nobel Prize in chemistry. Uh, really smart guy. Uh, he's been publishing all of these models tracking the virus, and he's been demonstrating quite elegantly that it's not exponential. Everyone's assuming this thing's going to go exponential, but it's not. It's never hit an exponential rate in any of the countries. So something's putting the brakes on this. Uh, I think what's putting the brakes on this is is all the papers that we're seeing come out showing that the the former coronaviruses that've gone through the population are providing antibodies to SARS-CoV-2, and that was never considered because they ran with this story that it's novel. Novel that, 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 so when that word was being used, uh, this is one of those situations where, uh, you know, a philosophical background is really valuable because you start saying, hey, if we're going to have a term that we add into the environment, everybody should understand what that term actually means. Because everybody around me was using it because, oh, it's like COVID or Corona. You told me that's what we call it. So that's yeah. what we call it. But they called it a novel coronavirus. Yes. And for the people that were like me, I don't know to push back on that. It, it could have been like the pink coronavirus. It wouldn't have yeah, mattered. Right, right. And But it actually has meaning in the rest of the it has an implication that we ended up taking on as far as how we reacted to the disease absolutely did and we should never do that again just because something is new from an rna standpoint does not mean that it's new to our immune system and and this is a bit of a, what goes on in the in, in publication bias I, I don't think there is any malfeasance here i think what happens is someone discovers a new coronavirus and that becomes publication meat hey, look, I found something new. I can get into a journal and say it's new. It's never been seen before. But if you come out saying, eh, it's, it's kind of been seen before, that doesn't get published as, as readily. So um, the, the truth is that we've got ancestry on this thing. Uh, we know that it, it has relationships to rat G13, but those are 40 to 70 years ago. So it's a huge missing link that we spoke about in the last podcast of 40 to 70 years. We don't know how long this has been in bats and how long it's been over in humans, but the assumption was that the first person they ever sequenced in Wuhan was a zoonotic event or close to it. And I just don't think there's really any evidence for that when you consider coronaviruses have been floating around mammals for ages. Um, and, uh, and now the antibody studies are coming out showing that there's more, it's been here either longer than we think or spread further than we anticipated. Um, and even those antibody studies, I think are underestimating the spread because when you design these antibody tests, you, you have to go through some work on an exclusivity and inclusivity study usually. What you do is you get a bunch of SARS viruses and show that, look, my test picks up these SARS viruses, but it doesn't pick up MERS and it doesn't pick up SARS-1. So you spend all this time making antibodies that are really, really specific to track the current virus. That's a great thing for tracking the current virus. But if you want to know about the immunity that might be out there, you actually want an antibody test that's going to pick up might the, is this person going to be immune to this or not? Well, then you might need to survey all the old coronaviruses because the patient may have seen those and built antibodies to the old coronaviruses that are applicable to this one. Uh, and that was never brought into the models, never brought into discussion. And now paper after paper is coming out showing that the antibodies to the old viruses are reactive against this current one. Uh, and I think those are that that is really the smoking gun on why this thing never went exponential. Uh, and I think that's probably what's behind uh, Michael Levitt's work. You're you're saying it never went exponential. I mean, I watch our world in data. You know, I'm I'm watching those charts come out, and they look like they are skyrocketing. It looks like, you know, if I turn on the news, they are running a dial that shows 
you know, 90,000, 100,000, a million people. And yeah. for me, I don't know if that's a lot of people or not. And I don't mean to be calloused. I mean, like, you know, you get up to numbers above 20,000 and it's difficult for the human brain to understand them other than in relative size. It is. And they're, they're often putting them on linear scales. And, and that's deceiving to the eye. And in, in, in sciences, when you're dealing with uh, exponentials, you put them on log scales so that you can tell if it's linear on a log scale, you, you, can, you can gauge the exponent here. But um, what, what Michael's work's been showing is that it's not been matching that. So there's some breaks on this thing. We don't know what the, he, he's not, you know, suggested what the breaks are. He's just been pointing out, look, everybody, it's not going exponential like it should. Why is it not spreading that fast? There must be other phantom forms of immunity or other people that have this virus that when the virus meets them, it's no longer a new event and it's not, it's not spreading as fast. Um, yeah, the one, the one paper I'll t I want to turn everybody to, because this, this really made my day, because I, I, that, that April 10th video I put out was like, I think there's going to be some immunity to this, but I've got no data to prove it. Uh, I just have a hunch, because like ancestry is, is real and evolution. Things tend to have ancestors, and our immune systems probably has some, some history to this. Uh, this came out from the, the last, uh, the, the first author's name on this is Grafani. If I didn't murder that, let me see if I can zoom in on this, because I can't, my eyes have gotten a little bad in lockdown here. Yeah, it's funny. G R I F O N I, and I'll try and link this to the end of this thing. But the, it's a paper in Cell. It's just, you know, it, the title of it is "Targets of T Cell Responses to SARS-CoV-2 Coronavirus in Humans with COVID-19 Disease and Unexpected Individuals." Um, so it's a really good paper. And the most important thing to take out of this uh, is that they flat out say this: is that it, you know we, we detected SARS-CoV-2 reactive CD4 positive T cells in 40 to 60 percent of unexposed individuals. This is a 100-person study, suggesting cross-reactive T cell recognition between circulating common cold coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2. So the common cold is basically. Uh, is is counterfeiting the, the pocket aces on this whole vaccine story. You're not going to need a vaccine. This thing's going to go away before those things even get out the gate. Whoa. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be dumping money into those stocks right now because I, I, I honestly think by the time they get those things cleared, it's going to be in the rearview mirror, and we're going to be talking about the next one that comes around because they come around every year. Uh, this one just happens to have been, uh, you know, done something really nasty with a lot of the comorbids, and we focus so much damn attention on it you know, if we had a scoreboard like we have on coronavirus on the 2018 flu, um, we'd all be, you know, wearing masks and petrified of the next flu season. Is no that what we'll masks. do? Do you think that's where we'll head? Are we head? That, that's uh, one I, of my I, thoughts on the mask conversation. And I, like, to be totally candid, you could be telling me something completely wrong and I would have no way to push back on it, right? I, sure, I, I'm not yeah. reading them. So I just have to be like, okay, let's take Kevin's idea out to its logical maximum which is okay so if this was people overreacting will we continue the charade of people wearing masks and running a scoreboard such that the fear of a disease can drive us into behaviors like staying at home all the time or i'm afraid it's going to go on longer than than the data suggests it should mainly because uh it's really hard to admit that we just made 40 million people unemployed by a mistake I think the people who have sunk their, you know, their heels in on that story are going to be really reluctant to let go, uh, and that's just human behavior. Um, but the data is piling up. That I mean, look at the lockdowns. They've Georgia's been on, you know, off lockdown since May first, and everyone's like, you know, salivating over the dead bodies that would pile up. There aren't any. 
you know, it hasn't, it hasn't gone crazy in Georgia, it hasn't gone crazy in Florida, it hasn't gone crazy in Texas. Um, I think Norway just came out uh, claiming that lockdowns are ineffective even in Norway, and Norway was kind of the antidote to Sweden. And now they've just pulled the rug out of that argument. <laughs> so, uh, you know, th th this is, uh, it's going to be, I think, really hard um, for the political class to let up. I think the media as well knows they're probably culpable in this, and so they're not going to turn around and, and uh, do a 180 on this overnight. They're going to probably you know, slowly change their tune uh, on this when it starts to become evident that uh, th these lockdowns were probably incredibly destructive and killed more people than they saved. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not hopeful that, that the story is going to, people are going to see the light and quickly recognize that we should change behavior. There is a sort of justice here in the sense that um, if the people that believe like you do, and I'm, I tend to feel like it, it was an overreaction, and they decide, well, I'm not going to wear masks, then they get to live their lives, right? They get to go out and breathe air freely. Yeah. And if they were wrong, they get really sick. And if they were right, then, uh, you know, the other people are stuck just wearing masks unnecessarily, putting a piece of cloth over their face. Yeah. The challenge becomes people will say, yeah, but if Kevin, you go out and you say, hey, this is right, this is what the data is telling us, I'm not going to wear a mask, I'm not going to participate, and you're wrong, all these people could could um, be exposed and you could be killing a lot of people. What do you think of that? Well, I think you can turn that argument right around to them and say the same bias probably existed in the model makers, right? It, when you're a model maker, if you're 10% wrong in one direction or the other, you would probably view that error bar equivalently. Like it's no big deal if you overcall it by 10% or undercall it by 10%. When it's a, a model that's predicting this type of potential destruction, you would rather be wrong a hundredfold in one direction and tenfold in the other, right? You would rather over cautiously, you know, predict what this might be than under call it. So um, what has that led to? Uh, are we going to count the people that are unemployed now? We, there's cancer patients backing up, as we mentioned before. There are heart disease um, patients that are that are not getting access to healthcare right now. There are deaths that are happening because of this lockdown. They're just invisible blood. No one's going to put them on the scoreboard, but we know they're happening. They are measurable. Um, the physicians are talking about. I think they said the rate of suicide in like the last month was equivalent to what they saw last year. I mean, it, it's it's. The numbers are, are, are there, and we have all these countries that did varying degrees of lockdowns where we can now draw some of these parallels and see that, okay, we didn't get a whole lot. Most of the lockdowns, by the way, happened late, right? They, after this thing spread, and, and this is something that I don't think it's spoken a lot about. When you start to see these things spike in the nursing homes, the nursing homes are the most sedentary population we have. So they get the viruses last. The people who are spreading this are probably the asymptomatics or partially symptomatics who confuse maybe their allergies for a cold and still go out. And those things get, those spread very quickly because those people are still in the marketplace, meeting people every day. They have an exponential contact map, whereas the people in the nursing homes have a very limited contact map. So when you see the death spike in the nursing homes, it's usually a sign that the asymptomatics wave is behind you, not in front of you. Um, and so we started the lockdowns really late when this thing was already everywhere um, and then proceeded to destroy the economy and, and, and wreck a lot of livelihoods. Uh, and now we're, we're slowly taking the brakes off of those things and there isn't any anything alarming going on. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't really subscribe to that. Like you have to wear a mask to protect everybody else. It's like, well, if you're really afraid of this and you're wearing your mask, what's the big deal?
It's kind of like the vaccine story. If you're vaccinated, why do you care if I'm not? <laughs> you should be protected, right? Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that these masks are, are fully protecting people as they think they might be, but put that aside, assume that they are. Uh, if they are 100% effective, you're an individual, wear it, go for it. But you, you, that, that shouldn't imply that some other individual has to change their behavior to, 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 to help buttress your fear and, and your health. Uh, that's never been the case. You know, I right now we're witnessing my greatest fear, probably the reason that I started doing the, the coronavirus podcasts. And now I'm trying to get back into the, hey, let, you know, doesn't matter whether coronavirus is here or not. We've just got to keep moving forward. Yeah. But mobs form, right? And they form oh, yeah. because they're afraid. They are feel pinned in. They feel like they want to have some sort of catharsis. And then you have inciting incidences however you think that that happened and you have the the chemicals are all in the same spot for explosions to happen and yeah. uh that's what it seems like is is happening you've got this situation where if you're in the in the politics seat and you want to make sure that the eyes aren't focused on did we overreact to this now you're going to start heading towards that that mob to keep the to to change the narrative yeah. But I think we have to, because if we don't push back on this quite forcefully, they're going to do it again. They're going to do it every cold season. This thing's going it, 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 flu is going to come around again. So is so is in the numbers the CDC just put out was like 0.26 percent fatality rate. That's not too different than the flu, right? Maybe two x. And the CDC saying that that's not that's not like some scientist off in the corner doing models that everyone's questioning the peer review on. That's like you know the CDC coming out who everyone was accusing early on of being incompetent uh, and not with the game, but even their numbers are, are coming down that low. So um, this is gonna come again if we don't stop and tell people and demonstrate that this is not the way to manage a pandemic. You, you cannot have uh, these lockdowns because there are all these unforeseen consequences that can be really destructive to the economy. And that does, it's not just money, those are lives that are actually getting destroyed be, due, due to livelihood issues. Um, so I, I think it's important that we continue to speak out about this because uh, it will repeat itself. And um, there, there, there isn't science behind a lot of these numbers. I think there is a propensity for the political class to grab models that fit their story and run with them. Uh, and that's clearly, uh, I, I think that, I think since we, uh, I, I can't remember what ha whether Ferguson's um, behavior was public back when we last spoke, but you know, this no, is the uh -uh. No, 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 no. We spoke a long time before that. Yeah, so he clearly didn't believe his own models. So tell the story. <laughs> tell tell who he he was for anybody that wasn't really uh, so watching. So Ian Ferguson, uh, Imperial College of London. Um, he has a history of of doom and gloom models. Uh, I think they used some of his models for bovine encephalitis, uh, and they ended up slaughtering millions of pigs. Uh, um, they also used um, his models for one other incident like this, and it, it was thought to be um, overblown. So they went back to the same guy who 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 cries chicken little the loudest. Uh, and in comes this two million uh, person prediction that um, uh, that that we're going to die in the United States. Now his code wasn't public. Uh, very recently, his code became public, uh, and it's a complete shamble. It's not reproducible. And that if you put the same number in twice, you get different numbers. Uh, and it was discovered that he he actually got COVID and was supposed to quarantine himself, and he didn't. Uh, he was found having an affair with somebody else's wife. Uh, right. All right. So here, here's the one where everyone else is getting locked down around the world because of this guy. And then he runs off and violates quarantine. He's like, well, I, you know, I, I thought I was past it and I had enough evidence to think that I was no longer contagious. I'm like, 
well, could you give everyone else that same freedom uh, that we can decide for ourselves <laughs> oh, what we think? Wow. All right. So um, the world is just on fire over what this person did. And th those models didn't go through peer review. But of course, they got sucked up by a class of people that saw they could use this to institute new forms of power. Uh, and so that, that, that's something we have to be really attentive to, that the political class magnifies power under pandemic circumstances. And we have to be really cautious about giving them, you know, giving into that. When we started talking about this as though it were a war, I became really uncomfortable because, you know, when, when you look at what wartime powers are designed to do, it's to say, you know, everything else stops except for the security of the overall nation. The individual citizens, even in that situation, not so protected from their own yeah. government. And yeah. so when we started saying this, it was like, wait a second, this is something we want to discuss. Like, yes, you have to have speed, but liberty is a real thing. And you guys are thinking it's something we can take for granted. We can take it away and we can give it back. We can take it away, we can give it back. That's not how liberty works. Because if no. people can grab your liberty, if they don't have to give it back, they won't. Well, that's what happened, right? What the flatten the curve turned into waits for a vaccine. All right, it, it, the goalposts move pretty quickly. So it's already happened here. And everyone said, oh, don't worry about it. That's not gonna happen. They'll, they'll give you your liberty right back. It's supposed to be a couple weeks. I think Fauci's original uh, plan was something like a couple weeks to flatten the curve. And, and now it's a couple months. And now you see California talking about, well, phases one through phase four. And, and, uh, and then the CDC has language for how to open up a school that looks like, you, like you know, the checklist for, for, for you know, taking off a plane. And this is insane. All the teachers I know are like, there's no way we're going to be able to educate kids when you when you treat them like that. I mean, they're going to be completely obsessed with all the mask wearing and the protections in there. It's, it's just going to uh, scare the daylights out, I think, all these children. So um, I, I fully agree with you there. there there's a really good um, podcast I point people to that Bob Murphy um, did on this that, that really changed my opinion on this because he went through the economics of a lot of war and demonstrates that in most cases, the country, if they're equal, somewhat equally matched in terms of population and perhaps power, the country that wins the war is the one that's the freest. Because in the end, a war is basically turning one's entire economy over into one purpose. And if you don't have an economy, you can't win that war. And so the United States was very effective early on in a lot of wars because it had the freest economy control compared to the very controlled ones. Wow. Uh, and so it's a very interesting dialogue about how um, the top-down command and control often backfires in war. And uh, he goes through some cases in, with U-boats in, in, um, uh, in England and how eventually it was the citizenry that figured out, hey, we need to get food back and forth. We're going to start forming convoys to get these things across the ocean because it's going to be easier for us to, to protect them that way. That was something that the, the generals were against. Uh, but the, 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 the free market started to do it and were successful, and then they mimicked it in, in, into, the, into the military. So there are all of these attributes about free markets that function far more effectively than, than this top-down command and control. And it's, it's even evident in the times of war, yet we've all been trained that, hey, when it's wartime, it's time to kill the economy and have one guy in charge. Uh, well, you do that to an extreme, you're gonna lose the war. Uh, and I think we're losing the war on COVID right now because of it. Well, and then we're losing the war on, on many other fronts, right? You have people that are unemployed, you have people that have been stuck, they've been told explicitly, you are not essential. And, uh, and now you're a powder keg, right? Like people need purpose. And if you've yeah. taken away their purpose and you've said your only purpose is just don't die and we'll take care of everything else, just don't die, be in your house. 
nothing good comes out of human civilization that doesn't have purpose, that isn't driving forward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're seeing this now in Minneapolis, right? It's just a powder keg. A lot of people have been unemployed for a while and violence is breaking out. So Kevin, I mean, most people, I think if they were involved in cannabis and they would be like, well, if they find out it's, you know, not good for our, our patients, that's not, you know, that'll, that'll suck. We'll deal with that when we get it. But you're sitting here turning resources over to studying this and to keeping it out. Why, where's the passion here? Why aren't you instead breeding, you know, better, better strains of really great pot? Uh, it's 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 a bit of an insurance policy. I mean, when you when you see an event like this happen, um, we're very lucky we didn't get closed down. A lot of other businesses in the life sciences are are, are hemorrhaging right now because they depended a lot on the academic community for revenues, and those academic labs are all partially shut down. Um, we happen to be in a space that didn't get shut down, but it could get shut down at a moment's notice if there's just one note of of it potentially being a vector for COVID. Um, so I'm in this odd position because I don't think this virus is going to be long for, long for very, very long yet. I'm out building assays to potentially detect it because I'm actually petrified that they'll come and shut the market down if they find one, one shot of... Um, no way they're shutting the cannabis market down. No way. Well, they, they won't be shutting down the black market. They failed doing that for 80 years. But um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they may, in fact, get to the safer side of it. Right now, the, there are some benefits to the... Um, the, the markets we have in cannabis are kind of interesting. They're, they're fairly, um, they're not as regulated as obviously FDA approved drugs. That's a very good thing, but there, there's a little bit more testing that goes on and it's fairly decentralized and that every state has a slightly different way to do this. That frustrates a lot of people because they're like, oh, it's different laws in California than in Massachusetts. But I view that it's kind of a laboratory of democracy that California comes up with some good ideas and regulations that we don't do here in mass. And so we're watching 50 different experiments go on. It's harder for us because we have to make kits that that um, address the different regulations in every damn state. However, we're learning from that too. That uh, that sometimes we learn something based on the Massachusetts regs that we would have never learned if we had a one size fits all um, regulation. So we're tolerant of it and understand it and do it. Um, so Federalism is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Like it's when, a it, when, very beautiful thing. when we let it run, then we get all of these opportunities to try different things that we couldn't in one other place. And if regulation in one place gets too big, then people leave. I will guarantee you Joe Rogan is going to leave California and move probably to Texas is what it sounds like to me. Right? I if hope you, so. Is that, is that really going on? I, I, mean, I think so, man. Contract with, uh, that's a big um, change in the media, right? Is, is his, he got a $100 million deal or something from Spotify? Yeah, and he probably said five or six times, uh, well, how's the comedy scene in Austin? How's the comedy scene in Austin? Hey, I really like Idaho. You know, he's talking about some other places. But I, I, they, I love Missouri. I, you know, yeah. I, the, the St. Louis, the city and the county, as soon as they could grab power where I live, they did. Um, we're just now coming off lift, like the lockdown. But our governor was way hands off, was like, hey, we're going to test. We're going to take things slow. We're not going to get rushed into this. I love Missouri. Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's really good to hear. Well, I hope he does move. Uh, I mean, Elon was threatening that as well. And it sounds like they caved to him. But, um, you know, Joe, Joe could do his podcast from anywhere. Uh, and uh, I hope he takes advantage of that because it's a very, uh, it's a big statement. And I like that he's, he might have a little bit more freedom. I understand he's, he's worried about getting censored. He, 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 what I like about him and your shows as well is you bring on all types of opinions and that's that puts you at risk of getting deplatformed. Uh, and, and this may be something that he's doing to, to basically hedge against deplatforming. I mean, he's had a Alex Jones on there who's the target of all types of deplatforming, right? 
So um, I'm, I'm certain if he wants to keep the caliber of his show up and get all the most esoteric views on there, he's got to find a shelter from people who can cut him off in a heartbeat. Yeah, and the, and the idea, the, what people want to talk about is the edge of chaos, right? They want to talk about right at the edge between what they know and, and they understand and something new. Most of the time, that's going to be edgy conversations. And if we're letting the large scale te uh, like tech companies decide which of those edge of chaos ideas are too far and we don't want people surfing there and they block right. them out this gets ugly in a hurry like you know and I, i'm somewhat shocked by this too because you, you have trump out there doing this executive order against twitter and uh some people cheering it on some people not and i'm i'm like I, did you ever see that movie on cambridge analytica i didn't no uh -uh. so i'm forgetting its name it might be data breach i think is um but anyway, it, it's, it's a really interesting story about a woman who is a whistleblower. I think she's now in the blockchain space. But uh, they went through how they can utilize Facebook as a mechanism for, um, for social unrest and a mechanism for apartheidism in political systems. And they first tested this out in like smaller countries in Africa and the Caribbean and showed great success that they could pretty much guarantee somebody a political spot if they use their data platform. And the Trump administration was their largest customer in the last election. Right, so he clearly is tuned in and one of the largest customers of manipulating social media data to his favor. And now he's out attacking Twitter as if he doesn't like that feature when he uses it. Uh, so I'm, I'm really perplexed by this. I, I don't like the idea of a fascist control of, hey, I'm just gonna executive order Ford Motor Company into my uh, domain space and have them make ventilators, or I'm gonna take over what Twitter can do so I can politically control it. I mean, that scares the hell out of me. I don't like what Twitter and Facebook are necessarily doing on, on, on um, deplatforming people and, uh, and what's going on with the First Amendment. But they are a private company, and everybody using those platforms agrees to the fact that, hey, we, it's our servers, man. We don't like what you put on here. We're going to cut you off. And there has to be you know, some, some level of that, given you know, some content is probably abusive to, you, know, you start getting to child pornography and all these ethical issues of there are victims involved in moving this information around. When, when it goes there, I understand they have to step in and, and get rid of this stuff. Um, but the, 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 you know, maybe someone will build a blockchain-based system that folks will migrate to that's completely uneditable and uh, you know, a social media platform that no one can edit. That'll be a really interesting experiment to see. Wow. That. But um, a few have been built. They just haven't taken off. It's really hard to get people off of Twitter and Facebook because there's so many people there and the network effect is extraordinarily powerful. But yeah, it's only valuable because your people are there, right? Exactly. And in, unless you could port that network from one place to another, I, you know, I can't replicate the news information and digestion like uh, system that I have on Twitter. If I ported it somebody or somewhere else, it would be extremely difficult. Somebody yeah. would have to architect it and find it and... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't yeah. think it can be done. Yeah, it wouldn't have the mass. It'd be really hard for all those people to exit. Um, and so you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the numbers there. But um, yeah, it's certainly Orwellian when you hear of, you know, the government's now going to get involved. And I'm, I'm not, um, I, I don't think this is new. Like if you look at what Snowden put out, um, they're meddling with this already. The government's already involved in filtering some of this stuff. Uh, they're already involved in, in scanning this stuff through the NSA. So it's not like they're not in there. That's a little bit of a farce to say that, oh, we're finally going to step in and control Twitter. It's like, no, you've been kind of doing it on the, on the backdrop without a lot of people knowing it. And now you're just going to make publicly make a statement that you're really doing it. What did you think of, uh, of Twitter putting a, a fact check below the president of the United States? 
long overdue considering he's been threatening war with uh with north korea i'm sorry yeah north korea right i mean doesn't that go against their community standards interesting you know no violence oh right. but uh, the president can talk about the nuclear football in north korea that seems a little uh, violent to me um so i'm not a fan of that um i know it's his largest platform and there's there are aspects of what he does that i sometimes agree with but um i'm not a big fan of of them uh, of any of the jingoism that comes out of that, uh, that doesn't seem to be productive at all. Um, nor, um, you know, some of the banter that goes on there seems to be just childish, but um, whatever, it's his, it's his choice to do it. Uh, if that's the way he wants to play politics, that's his choice. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I try to stay out of that game. I'm not much of a voter. Uh, so I, I've kind of given up on the whole system that I, I really don't think it can be changed through a vote. Um, I think it's more change with individual action in the economy. I think you have far more influence with where you spend your dollars than where you spend that imaginary vote every four years. So I, I, I try to put as little effort into that as possible because I know it's just distractionary bandwidth. I don't have I don't have the RAM for. And what are you spending your dollars on these days that you were not spending your dollars on uh, before the coronavirus pandemic? Well, that's a good question. I think uh, we all went through a little bit of a fear early on. So, I, you know, early on, I did all the, like, get myself some O2, get some oxygen generators, get some quinine, get all the things I might need when this was cooking. And then I realized, okay, I've been had. I went and bought all this shit. And I probably don't need it, but better safe than sorry. Um, but no, I, I've been trying to channel my efforts into entrepreneurial efforts. Uh, I want to, I'm putting effort into building tests for COVID on cannabis, and we're doing work on uh, right now, we've been cloning a lot of enzymes out of the cannabis genome into other organisms so that we can express some of the enzymes in the plant that fight off pathogens. I mean, the, the real issue in, um, in cannabis is yield. Uh, like any farmer knows, uh, you don't want to have aspergillus or penicillium or botrytis or powdery mildew wreaking havoc. Fusarium is another one. These things all wreak havoc on, uh, and can destroy 40% of your grow. Um, and that those yield numbers really matter. So we have been, um, we found some powdery mildew resistance genes in cannabis and a few of the cannabis plants. Uh, they're missing in other cannabis plants. So we clone those enzymes and we're expressing them and we're demonstrating that they, they knock down um, other fungal growth by a thousand fold in vitro. So we can maybe build, um, we can build sprays that aren't chemically based. Like uh, you, you've got a Monsanto history, right? So you now know, and you, you, you guys have paved the road here that uh, the chemical sprays can be a real problem. They end up yeah, but the biologicals and, aren't aren't regulated. Biologicals <laughs> are more ephemeral. Yeah, you got to apply them more, but they decay in the sun and over time, and they're not a small molecule that's going to enrich. And the cannabis space does a lot of extraction. So if you use a small molecule as a as a fungicide, like mycobutanol or Eagle Twenty is probably well known in the in the agricultural space. A perfectly fine um, you know fungicide, except when you heat that thing, it turns into hydrogen cyanide. Right? So you don't want that fungicide making its way into an extraction because it enriches in the extraction more than the cannabinoids do. And you, they end up in vape pens and people are smoking hydrogen cyanide. So you got to change what you do in the cannabis field for fungicides. And we want to go the direction of, of biologics because the biologics are native to the plants already. They're already. They've already had thousands of years of human exposure. Um, and they're more ephemeral. They decay in the environment. So you can use them to knock down the pathogens. And by the time you harvest, they're probably gone. Uh, and so we want to we go down to the enzyme road here and, and grab enzymes out of the cannabis plant that everybody's comfortable with and just turbocharge their expression uh, and reapply them to the plants when uh, the plants that need them. Uh, so we've been going down that road because it looks less regulated. It's an interesting road to go down. It is less regulated and there 
so I have friends in this space and, uh, and many of them have told me there's going to be a couple of wonder things that come out of this because it's really just a biological agent producing a chemical. So you're still doing chemistry at its core, Yeah. but that a huge amount of what's going to get sold into the system probably already has been sold in the system is snake oil. So how yeah. are you yeah. present, preventing yourself from, from, uh, the, the sweet, sweet alcohol of your own brew? Yeah. Yeah, these so these enzymes are chitinases and thaumatine-like proteins. Um, these things decay beta-glucan. The thaumatine proteins decay beta-glucan, which is in the cell wall of, of fungi, and the chitinases hit chitin. And so when you hit them with both of those, the fungal walls dissolve. And um, it's actually the most highly expressed gene in cannabis is the chitinase, uh, at least the plants that we've been sequencing. So the gene is already turned on full charge. Because it was confronted with this in the wild in the past, yeah. huh? Yeah, okay. it, and interestingly enough, it doesn't express it in the roots. Like the root system has zero expression of this. And I think that's because the roots need to talk to mycorrhizal fungi. And so they don't want to be emitting something that melts fungi. What is the history of, of cannabis? Do you know how it became domesticated? That is a very good question. Um, it, there's a lot of uh, history and folklore there, but I think the... I think it's the tombs in China. Ethan Russo is probably the best person to talk to, and then I can connect you with him if you ever want to get into the ethnobotany. Um, John McPartland's another good name on this. Um, and they were they found psychoactive THC in tombs in China that I think were like five thousand years old. Right, so that they were able to they were able to PCR the the cannabis that they found in these tombs to know that the THC gene was there. Therefore, it wasn't just fiber type. And so, and it was a grave, so a ceremony. They can see that they probably packed some of the stuff into the grave as a ceremony. So we know we know that far back. Um, the the pollen records suggest it diverged uh, like 20 million years ago, maybe from hops. Uh, and uh, so it's got an old pollen record, but we don't have, we can't get DNA that's that old. So um, I think the oldest DNA sequences out there are probably for the Denisovans. That might be like 100,000 years old. Um, I could be behind on some of that, that paleogenomics work, but it's, we, we don't have good ability to sequence DNA that's, that's you know, a million years old at the moment. So uh, we, we, can, we can PCR stuff that's thousands of years old, not a problem. And, you know, 100,000 years old, there are the ways to do it. But when you go deep, deeper into this, it's a bit harder to get DNA out of it. Um, but anyway, it, did, it wasn't here. There's no evidence it was in North America. The evidence is that it came out of, of the Hindu Kush area and then spread around the globe in an equatorial sense. Um, in fact, it was used to create the fiber uh, for the sales. So canvas sales, the can in canvas is for cannabis. No way. Yeah, yeah. so oh. James, James Cook actually introduced cannabis to Australia because he carried cannabis seeds with him everywhere he went in case his sales got wrecked. He'd plant these things and they grow within eight, eight to 10 weeks, recreate his fiber. He could remake his sales and, and move on. Um, so all the cannabis that's in Australia is presumed to have come from James Cook. Um, and then how, when it got to America is, is an unknown. Um, I, I don't know that if, I don't have good uh, visibility on that, but it, it's not believed to have been here until ships brought it here. So it was the naval, it was the whale oil of, of the naval industry and, and the human diaspora was really powered by cannabis. Uh, so it's gone with us all over the globe and intermixed for a long period of time. So people have been smoking it for that long or, or predominantly I, using know, it for the fibers? It's a good question. I, I don't know um, when that aspect was discovered. Um, you know, it was certainly in, in the, uh, you know, being used in, uh, for, for seed and fiber for a long period of time. But I don't know when someone decided to smoke it. That's a, 
Uh, we have evidence of that tomb 5,000 years ago, so I would assume that was prior to a lot of these ships moving all over the place, so people on those ships probably knew about its, uh, its psychoactive effects as well. Kevin, you find me, you find me the expert on this and we will have the greatest yeah. conversation because what, what an interesting plant and for it to, the thing that strikes me is there's very few things in this world that want to draw attention to themselves as much as that plant does because it smells so strongly yeah. when it's ready to, to be harvested that it's, it's, it's unimaginable. If you're, so I used to live in Mendocino. You could be walking around in the woods and smell something and people would be like, well, that's several miles away. Yeah, yeah. And don't, don't walk over there, by the way. You might get a Yeah, trap. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the terpenes that the plant makes. And um, those are important essential oils as well. A lot of the terpenes, like beta-carophylline is one that's quite common in cannabis and is known to be a cannabinoid 2 agonist. So even things that aren't cannabinoids in the plant have some activity on the endocannabinoid system. And what uh, are terpenes? Yeah, for people that haven't been into a smoke shop to see like, the, the, this is the terpene profile. Yeah, so terpenes are smaller molecular weight molecules. They're, they're, um, the plant makes a lot of these uh, six and eight carbon chain molecules that kind of glues those things together into a variety of, of different compounds that are, that are volatile. Volatile meaning they, they, they um, vape off into the air and you can smell them from long distances away. But they're believed to be signaling molecules um, that are used to either fight off, you know, pesticide, you know, you know other insects, or, or also maybe even attract things that might move its seed around. So, um, a really good paper um, to go and read is from David Sinclair on this. David Sinclair, you may know, is one someone who's been working on the Fountain of Youth for a long time. He's published a lot on Reversipol, uh, and he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast a few times. So he does really good work out of Harvard. Um, he published a really good paper on xenohormesis, which is this concept that plants um, make chemical messengers to attract the things that might move their seed around. Okay, so uh, terpenes are, are in that category, that they're building these compounds to not only be an insecticide, but they're also meant to attract humans to perhaps, or other mammals to perhaps engage with this plant and move it around. But as a result of this, they tend to have really interesting signaling to the organisms that eat them. Um, they're known to, to, to play around in the pathway in the human body known as the mTOR pathway. mTOR is uh, involved in your metabolism. So his theory is that when the plants start to sense environmental stress, they change their terpene profile so that the things that are consuming them get a signal that prepare for caloric restriction, I'm going away. Uh, and it's adapted to do this in theory so that the thing that's spreading its seed gets a signal from the environment to prepare for change so that its partner in transmission of its genetics is actually receiving some chemical messengers to make it, um, you know, to, to make it better prepared. The paper will blow your mind. This, this sounds remarkably similar. I have uh, good friends that are in the pepper breeding and I actually heard one of the, oh, one of the world's great pepper breeders said that when they started uh, breeding jalapenos, uh, they put it in the best conditions they could possibly get, right? Perfectly watered, lots of sun, protecting it. And they found out that the Scovilles of these, on these jalapenos were going down, down, down. Wow. Because the way that the, the chemical that the seeds produce, capsaicin, which, you know, is that really spi spicy chemical, it is uh, increased when the plant is stressed. Yes, this so is true. Yeah. You have to go out and like break branches. You have to hold withhold water, and that's the plight of the of the um, pepper breeder, the pepper, because you've got to um, 
balance that out. And I believe they think it's epigenetic. So if you are stressed parents, then you give children that end up being more. Yeah. 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 It's quite possible. We, you know, we're just starting to get into epigenetics and cannabis. We just published um, some of the first methylation maps in cannabis um, and plant methylation is more complicated than mammalian methylation. They, they, uh, mammals tend to methylate only. What is seed. methylation? So in, in DNA, um, ATCs and Gs can transmit through sexual reproduction into the offspring. The, 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 um, the cells that, that contain those in the plant can have some memory. They, they can write messages on the DNA based on the environment, but that message doesn't always get transmitted. All right, so when they do this in the form of methylation, they'll come onto the cytosines and they'll put a, a methyl group on it. And that methyl group, when the polymerase copies the DNA into the next generation, it doesn't copy the methyl group. So the methylation patterns are not um, replicable necessarily into the, meth into the next generation. Some of them can be, but it's, it's a much more subtle effect than the copying you get on the ATCs and Gs. So you have to think of the, when the environment wants to paint its picture onto DNA, it's doing it with methylation. Right, the, the environment gets printed onto DNA based on methylation patterns. And the plants have more ways to methylate DNA than humans do. We tend to only methylate Cs that are next to Gs. Plants can do almost any C in the genome, they can methylate. And so the methylation patterns are far more complicated and we don't fully understand them in cannabis yet. Um, but we're starting to do this for that reason because you're absolutely right. In cannabis, if you want to get the terpene profile up and the cannabinoid profile up, you need to stress that plant. Uh, and its secondary metabolism kicks in and starts making all types of different molecules uh, when it's stressed. Um, this is why they try not to seed them. So if you really want to get cannabinoid content up, you keep pollen away from the female plants. And the female plants start to stress out because they're getting late in their life cycle and they're worried they're not going to make a seed. And so they start making more cannabinoids and more terpenes and the, and the flowers get bigger. Uh, and so one way of, of stressing these plants out is pushing them into later their growth and, and keep pollen completely away from them. And then they end up getting really large flowers. Whoa. So you're, you're absolutely right. Same thing's going on in peppers. And it's a very similar pathway. I think capsaicin is probably in, in I wouldn't be surprised if there's a terpene pathway in there that's making capsaicin. Uh, the, so the terpenes, um, they're, they're very small volatile molecules. Um, the building blocks that make terpenes are also utilized to make larger molecules like cannabinoids. Uh, cannabinoids are like 21, comp 21 carbon molecules, and the terpenes are usually like half that or less. So there, there, um, there is some competition there that when you get changes in terpene profiles, th th those will change to the environment much more quickly than the cannabinoid content will because the cannabinoids are like 10 enzymatic steps downstream. And so when you get a change in the environment, the terpenes will change first and the cannabinoids will get, their, their change will be much more delayed like a few weeks later. So there's a bit of a, um, a queuing theory issue there and getting the cannabinoids to move around a lot with the, with the environment, but the terpenes you can change instantly. And you, there are even papers out there that if you, um, there's a dance with these things with the microbes that if you actually antibiotic treat the flowers, this wasn't done in cannabis, it was done on Rabidopsis. But if you antibiotic treat the flowers and wipe out the microbiome, terpene profile completely changes. Wow. So, so they're that much in a dance between, yes. between uh, what's going on all the way down at the roots and the microbiome. Wow. Yeah, there are unique terpenes that are made in the roots too that we don't see in the flowers. Um, this is uh, Keith Allen published some of this work. Um, he was working with the reference that we made on Jamaican lion and profiled all, all the uh, terpene synthase genes, beautiful paper. And he noticed that there's a few of these terpenes that are exclusively expressed in the roots and we don't know what the hell they are. 
So you have a very precise and nuanced way of looking at how the environment impacts these chemicals and these microbes, and you're thinking about this on a very deep level. But what if we zoomed the camera lens way, way, way back, and instead of looking at what is it doing to the individual human mind, what, it, what happens when a culture now gets a hold of this chemical in mass or these chemicals in mass in a way that they never have before? What are the societal implications of this, of this being something we can grow on a scale we've never done before? Okay, so I think the first thing, it goes back to that mask thing, right? Um, you cannot, there, there's a tendency to do a one size fits all on the human population as well. That can, like THC does the same thing to everybody. It's not true. Uh, all right, there's, there's like 9% of the population that gets anxiety from THC. Um, and they believe it's associated with an AKT1 variant, but it's still early data. Uh, likewise, um, so I think it's just important to know when, when there's some generalization going on where people say, oh, THC gets everybody high and gets them stoned and they sit on their couch and eat Doritos. That's just it it has like a stimulation effect on me. It, it's almost like go. taking Adderall or something. Like yeah. I, I never took Adderall, but I, the way that I hear other people describe it, for me, it is like extreme focus. I, I know people who do that as well. Like, they want to get stuff done. They have THC and they go to town and clean the house and they, they end up like, you know, writing papers. This is, uh, it has a different effect. Some people couch locks them. Uh, and they, you know, they perhaps they become net Netflix junkies. But uh, so that's that's the first thing is, is to step back and realize human biology is also a different uh, glove, uh, hand and glove type of environment here. Uh, we did we published a paper on this um, for a while. We were sequencing lots of patients with epilepsy uh, to try and sort out which genes were involved in CBD helping epileptic patients. And what we quickly found there is that there are variants in the in the human population, the cannabinoid one receptor and a gene known as DAGLA, which is involved in making your own endocannabinoids. Your body makes cannabinoids, but they're, they don't look the same as the plant ones. The plant one is, is mimicking them just like opiates are mimicking endorphins. Cannabinoids are mimicking anandamide and 2-AG. Those are the compounds that your body makes that the plant tries to stealthily mimic. Uh, well, there's enzymes in your body that make those things and break those things down. And there are variants in the human population that alter the ability for those enzymes to properly function. So we published a paper demonstrating there were, there are people in the population that have those mutations and they tend to have a higher likelihood of getting migraines, getting headaches, seizures, host of these, these things. So um, I just want to be really clear that this is uh, it's not a one size fits all. There's some generalization. You'll hear people say that CBD does X and THC does Y, and there's some generalizations there that are true, but there are always there are always edge cases. Um, so when you're back to your question, when when people are engaged in taking these cannabinoids, it's very rare that they're taking a pure isolated compound. You know, they're usually taking a plant extract which has hundreds of compounds in them at varying concentrations or one that have been extracted so they're slightly enriched for more THC or CBD. But there's this long tail of other terpenes, cannabinoids, flavonoids that we don't really understand yet and what they do. But um, they, um, they're, they're very much delivering uh, a different experience every time. And I, I think that's, that's probably one reason why I think this is a very attractive market to recreational users is that um, much like wine, it's a very different flavor of every plant that you, that you visit. And every you know concoction that you come up with, it's very rare that you come across a plant that's expressing exactly the same cannabinoid ratios and terpene ratios that you had before. And so you may have a very different experience, um, you know, plant to plant. It's Maybe, like a boat ride is going to be different every time, right? It's, yeah, it yeah. may look a lot the same, but it's going to it's going to wave around in the waves. It's going to handle differently. It's going to pick up the wind a little differently. All of them are just a little bit different. 
Yeah, and you know this this tends to scare people in the FDA because they're like, whoa, whoa, you're just doing random number generators on people's minds, man. You can't do that, you know. But but the, you know the, the the history here, and I think it probably has to do with their evolution that we've been, you know, we this is they believe this is the first plant we ever domesticated. I mean, that's how far back it goes. So if that's the case, our genetics probably. Well, you know, we've, we're not seeing deaths from this. Probably. Wait, did you say you think this is the first plant we ever domesticated? Yeah, if you, if you talk to folks like Ethan Russo and, and McPartland, that's what you see in the literature. Is this may be the first domesticated plant. I mean, you could imagine people being highly, highly motivated when they found out that there is this wild plant that can make you feel this way or have these ideas. I, I mean, like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then that, that's something that's pretty sticky. Uh, I mean, it's funny. We we published our, our preprint on um, these 42 genomes that we sequenced, and the the one area that a few people commented on is that we we put in there that these cannabinoids and terpenes might be uh, responsible for attracting pollinators, and they all like threw bees at us. Like, no, it's not true. Bees only go to cannabis plants uh, at, at late in the year, and they don't really move it from male to female plants. They just eat the pollen and take it. It's a good food source. They're not at all pollinator and this stuff is wind pollinated and i had to remind them that you're forgetting about humans right the biggest pollinator in cannabis are humans and they're <laughs> not telling me that you're not attracted to this plant all right it's the most it's the most widely consumed illicit drug uh it has definitely found a way to make us pollinate it and if the bees aren't doing it we are um and and i think that's that's very true uh we have carried this all over the globe for a reason uh, whether it be the food fiber or the psychoactive effects so it, it's um, a symbiotic uh, relationship in some way, right? In, in exactly. And that the plant would have adapted to what we, what, what the humans wanted and the ones that they gave humans what they wanted randomly got selected for yeah. many, many times over. Like imagine if the poppy plant made fiber, you know, would we have an opiate overdose problem right now if we were traveling all over the world with opiates or would have we created a population of people that just never died from opiates? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's just a thought experiment. Oh, but, that is a wild thought experiment that you had to select out for the humans that were going to um, have cannabis terrible reactions, but that's already been done. But now with poppies, we never did that because they were really only for one thing. Other, yeah. other, than, other than one drug that was probably discovered fairly late in its, in, in its relationship with humans. Man, I always thought it was total garbage a couple of years ago when people would talk about hemp and hemp plants and paper and and uh, string. And I think people oftentimes overemphasize things when it benefits them and kind of, sure. you know, but it, it really is. I mean, for you to tell me that sales were made from, from cannabis, like that is so mind blowing because that would mean that you could, you basically have a little factory that you just hold in your pocket and it's biologically, yeah. you know, it's, you just put it, the sun on and some water and bang, you've got a, you've got a fiber factory built. For yeah. And, and the, the genetics have diverged enough where the, the hemp plants are different genetics than the ones that might grow CBD or THC. Um, but that's natural. That's just people selecting over the years that they want really tall, lanky plants that make the fiber. There's different plants they want that make the seeds that are really big. And, and then the cannabis plants they, they, they make for making very large flowers have completely different genetics and morphology. I mean, they're really distant, actually. If you look at the distance between hemp and cannabis, uh, like drug-type cannabis, I think we're finding like 15 or 16 million SNPs. Um, so it's, it's like 10 times the polymorphism rate 
that you would see between any two humans, that you would see between a hemp plant and, and, a, and a drug type cannabis plant. So separated quite a while ago. They're, they are, they're very different. Um, With the Devisonians, would it be before we were broken off from humans then? Oh, I, I haven't done, that's a good question on a molecular clock basis. I haven't done that. Um, I, we just know that they're much more, um, they're much more polymorphic at the moment, but I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I gotta ask a few people about that. That's an interesting question. Kevin, you're a, an amazing you know, plant storyteller. You've got all these ideas. Why Boston? Uh, why, why are you running your company out of there, East Coast? It's, so that's a good question. We, when we started this in 2011, I had to get a BV set up in the Netherlands because we were absolutely petrified that lawyer, you know, we'd get shut down. We were, you know, in 2011, cannabis wasn't, the, the, the movement wasn't to the state where, where it was legal in a couple of states. It was still pretty much illegal everywhere other than maybe medical use in California. Um, so our lawyers advised, look, set up a BV over in Holland. Uh, it's gonna cost you like 30, 30K or something to do this, but you'll be in a jurisdiction where it's free for you to purify DNA and you can ship that DNA into the States, but you can't be shipping samples from Holland into the States. And, and you want to have a really clean bill of record that the first cannabis plant you sequenced, you, you, you crossed all the I's and dotted the T's. So we went through all that. Um, and now it's not needed. You don't need to do that. But that's just the frustrating aspect of, of regulation. Um, now we can do this here in Massachusetts. We're a recreationally legal state. Um, we didn't get shut down during this um, COVID then, thank God. But um, Boston is a biotech hub of the world. I mean, this is the, if you want to deploy genomics on cannabis, this is the place to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, only the place I'm going to make the pitch. I'm going to make the pitch that, that St. Louis is the place that should be. I want St. Louis too. to be the yeah, Hong right. Kong because yeah. we are the, the huge hub of plant biologists per Absolutely. capita. We have more plant biologists than anybody else. We don't have traffic. We've got really, really inexpensive lab space and we've got a dining scene that's killer, which that's what you need yeah. is people to be able to come together, have meals, uh, interact, come up with new ideas. I want I want you guys and, to come to got, St. Louis. Yeah. You've got the WashU Genome Center there too. That's that right. Is one of the best genome centers in the world, right and, there in St. Louis. And we've been cranking out genomic uh, data engineers uh, out of Monsanto for you know about a decade now. And so we have some hardcore yeah. data scientists and architects. I know a lot of people there that that came out of WashU, did a stint in Monsanto. Really talented bioinformatics folks that are uh, now on their own in, in sort of the plant breeding arena. So it is. You're right. That is that is very good hub. Well, well, and the guy that hooked us up, Rob Long, Plantimals, is uh, the the data um, genius that that knows all about how to set yes. up architecture systems to track genomes. And I owe him some thanks for doing that. I mean, that's what I love about Rob is he may, he doesn't have to agree with everything you say to still be able to recommend other people should 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 have a look at what you do. And that's, that's rare today. Right now we have a lot of people that are just uh, on one side of this fight versus another. And if you find yourself in the middle of that fight, not picking sides, you're, you're somewhat isolated. I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. That's been the craziest thing about all of this experience because I was interacting and talking with different people. And I naturally like to be around disagreeable people. I like to be around somebody that's like, hey, the idea you had, Vance, that wasn't very good. And let me tell you why. Yeah. But this sense of we're going to disagree with you by yelling at you or by like just telling you that there's no possible way that anything you're saying is correct. And the fact that you believe it means blood is on your hands. I don't have any time for this. I don't want, I don't yeah. want anything to do with the people that are like that. Yeah. Covidiot has come out of this, right? All types of slander and slurs. <laughs> and I've seen it used on either side of the fence too. 
Yeah, one, one side calling the other idiots, the other one, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Um, I, I think that, you know, the social media systems are doing what they're designed to do, which is to split people uh, into fractions here and, and have us fight while, uh, you know, all hell breaks loose elsewhere. So, Kevin, uh, in closing, what do you think you're going to be paying attention to over the next two weeks? Oh, what's today? Oh, I think I'm going to be paying attention to getting outside, <laughs> to be honest. The weather is turning around. I'm not afraid of this thing. I think it's time to get outside, get healthy, get people convinced that, hey, it's safe to go back outside. It's safe to re-engage. Uh, lead by example here. I, I think keyboard worrying everybody into, into opening up lockdown isn't going to work. I think we should just lead uh, with our actions and start supporting small businesses, start supporting small I'm going to start planting my garden. I mean, that's key because if this continues on, I think everyone, this is a great time for people to learn how to garden. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is it. Summer's here and, and, you know, we don't have enough of that. And I know all the farmers that you're in touch with probably resonate with this, that there's too many people in this world that, that cannot feed themselves in, in a crisis. Uh, and, we, and our food chains are a little bit too, are not decentralized enough. But if everyone can grow, hey, try it with cannabis. It's the easiest thing to grow. In most states, you can grow six to 12 plants on your own. And if you want to teach someone how to grow, that's probably the best place to start because you really can't screw it up. Yeah, you will always have volunteers that will come over and weed with you. If yes, uh, it, so, <laughs> no problem if you have a guaranteed crop share. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's hard to get recruits for tomatoes, but you tell people you're gonna you need some help with your cannabis plants, and you'll have a you'll have an army of people who want to chip in. Kevin, uh, it is so good to talk with you. I'm, I'm so glad uh, we had a chance to catch up and this seemed like the right time. Thank you for sharing all your research and your background. I really appreciate it, man. Indeed. And I want to, um, I'll send you a, uh, or I'll post some of these, these links because I want to make sure people don't think I'm just talking out my ass here. There are all these papers that have come out talking about the antibody response in COVID. And I really think everyone should read those because they're not getting airtime. So and, I'll put them in my show notes, but how can people find you on Twitter? Because that's how I have stayed in touch with you. As I watch your feed, it's very good. It's it, it's it's all signal, almost no noise. That's on, uh, I think I'm uh, Kevin underscore McKernan on Twitter. So yeah, okay. look me up there. Um, I, I've got some, some other content on Facebook as well that allows more characters. Um, I rarely, a little bit on LinkedIn as well, but it's, I think all of them are Kevin underscore McKernan. So you can find me on any of those three platforms and our, our website's uh, medicinalgenomics.com. Thank you so much, Kevin. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you.